0: You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, April the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Weekly Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined in studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and political reporter, Mary Minahan. In a little while, we're going to be hearing from two prominent anti-abortion campaigners on what they think will happen now that the Citizens' Assembly has concluded its deliberations on the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. But in terms of live political issues at the moment, Mary, there's another one that involves conflicts around medicine, the state, uh, religion ethics, and that's the position of the National Maternity Hospital and its proposed relocation to the uh, Vincent's Hospital campus in Dublin. Uh, There continue to be developments on that this morning. I gather you talked to the Minister for Health.
1: Yeah, I had a brief conversation with the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, uh, who is going into Cabinet today just to brief his colleagues on the latest. I I suppose the latest on this seems to be that things are possibly settling down a bit. We've had these autonomy pledges from uh, both uh, hospitals, which have sort of reassured the public to some extent, but I wouldn't say entirely uh, that um, the nuns as they're called will not be involved in the running of this hospital. So what Simon Harris had to say was that he'd welcomed very much this statement. It's our lead story today under the headline, Autonomy Pledges Put Hospital Move Back On Track. So as you can imagine, Simon Harris is is kind of pleased enough to hear that. Um, I think what he's looking for now is a little bit of time to speak to uh, representatives of both hospitals to go back Back then to cabinet uh, and the Eructus Health Committee at the end of May, and he seems adamant that he doesn't believe that this is going to uh, going to delay the whole process. Um, if I'm right now, the the planning process, uh, planning permission is due in the autumn, so he thinks that the entire thing is still on track. But you know, we'll see. Uh, obviously, the master of the National Maternity Hospital at Hollis Street, Rona Mahoney, made a very uh, spirited intervention. You Extremely might call fun. it this morning. Yeah. She's an interesting character and she's almost acquired the status, I think, of a, of a modern-day Irish feminist icon recently and yet she finds herself in the, in this very, very hot debate. And one very interesting thing she said this morning was that the uh, we've had this, um, my colleague Harry McGee has, has spoken about how this row has been conducted through phone messaging. You know, it's an, an, almost a teenage approach, but uh, P- Peter Boylan, her, uh, Rona Mahy's predecessor there as master, Uh, has obviously been sending some quite controversial texts to her and she on the radio described the text as quite intimidating and quite unacceptable. So that raised a few eyebrows this morning and would indicate maybe that this row isn't quite settling down as much as people would like. I
0: can't, I, I can't avoid mentioning that, that he's also her yeah, brother-in-law. he's her professional um,
1: paediatric colleague, a fellow board member and her own brother-in-law. So that probably adds an extra emotional dimension to this. And I suppose for Rona Mahoney, she is seeing the project of her life potentially slipping out of her grasp. And I suppose a woman like her is not going to take lying down the accusation that she's going to allow the nuns to run a hospital. And certainly as a, as a recent enough inmate of the National Maternity Hospital, I can certainly vouch for what she says when it, she says a they're, they're practising yes, 21st I've, I've, I've century in medicine in the well. building that is, is crumbling on the edge of Marion Square. And it, you know, the care is good, it goes without saying, but sure. the conditions are absolutely awful. And where it gets really scary is where something goes wrong for a woman in the middle of the night. And because the hospital isn't co-located, because it isn't on a site <coughs> with another adult hospital, things can get very, very scary. I, 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 I mean,
0: I, I raised the, the issue of the, of the relationship between um, Professor Boyle and, and Rona O'Mahony, Pat, not just out of kind of, Piqued interest, although it did that, but also because I mean, you you have a you've written a piece, which is really about how there are other tectonic plates underneath this in terms of bad relationships between some of the the some of the key players. I mean, even apart from the broader church state issue, which I think was, is, is going to rumble on in various other areas, including education as well as health. That you know that that Vincent's Hospital, for example, has had a long-standing poisonous relationship with the with the HSE and the Department of Health.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean. I wrote a piece uh, last Saturday um, kind of pointing out that because of Ireland's history, great chunks of our healthcare and education system is actually legally owned by the church in its various manifestations. And while that may not be uh, suitable for a modern secular republic, and it's, some- it's certainly something that irks an awful lot of people it's a product of history and i suppose we have to deal with it um uh, as as we are i think that is what probably both hospitals have been trying to do in striking uh, in striking this agreement but the agreement comes against a background uh, as as uh, as you mentioned uh, of a very poor relationship a very uneasy and mutually suspicious relationship between St. Vincent's and the HSE. and um, the Irish model of kind of quasi-independent voluntary hospitals is actually not that uh, unusual by uh, by international standards. Lots of countries have these uh, independent hospitals or largely independent hospitals that are funded by the state. There is a great deal of autonomy within uh, the Irish system and St. Vincent's is one of the most autonomous and certainly one of the most jealous in guarding its independence and its autonomy. Notwithstanding the fact that the taxpayer funds St. Vincent's Public Hospital to the tune of over 200 million euros uh, a year, it is governed and run according to its own structure. So he does
0: not call the tune.
2: No. And in fact, he who pays the piper doesn't even get to tell St. Vincent's what it can or can't pay some of its leading musicians, if that's not stretching the, uh, the metaphor beyond breaking point. The level of payment to senior executives, the extent to which consultants in the public hospital also work in the private hospital that is part of the St. Vincent's healthcare group but in de- and on the same campus, but independent of the HSE, the extent to which public and private consultants cross over there, has been uh, a subject of very considerable uh, conflict and bad blood between the HSE and St. Vincent's. And I'm given to understand that that was one of the things that uh, drove St. Vincent's uh, to issue the statement last week when it said it was going to review this entire process because... Uh, What Simon Harris, the Minister for Health, had last week said was that he would get the HSE to make sure that St. Vincent's essentially behaved in relation to ownership and clinical governance on this. And that, I'm told, uh, uh, irked an awful lot of uh, senior people in uh, in St. Vincent's. Now, I think Mary is right. I think that the temperature has dialed down. A little bit with Saint Vincent's statement uh, last night, with the interventions uh, from the Minister for Health, who is uh, now going to conduct some sort of a month-long process. Uh, So I think that I think the heat maybe go out of it, and our lead story in today's paper reflects that the heat maybe go out will go out of it this week. However, in the medium term, I think it is the government's view that the ownership of the ownership question on the new maternity hospital to be built in St. Vincent's will have to be addressed, that the current uh, the current agreement between the two hospitals, which stipulates and which gave rise to the controversy in the first place, that St. Vincent's would own the new maternity hospital. I think the government the government's view right now is that that will have to change and I'm not sure that St Vincent's will agree to that. And, and why, Mary,
0: why did this blow up in the in the way it did? I mean, this was essentially known for a number of months. I think there was another newspaper to... Uh Times of London I believe it's called I'm not familiar with it myself but uh, it ran a story about this back in back in early March and then when the Irish Times uh, Patsy McGarry ran a story last week it suddenly blew up is it because of the general temperature around these issues <coughs> of um, uh, women's reproductive rights uh, the relationship between church and state the issue arising out of the tomb babies and redress screams and, uh, and 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 money not paid is it a sort of a conflation of all those things or was it because it was a quiet week
1: no I don't think it was because it was a qu- Quiet week. I mean, as you say correctly, it did appear in the Ireland edition of the Times, and then subsequently, about a month later, in the Irish Times, uh, a similar story, maybe with slightly a different twist to it. But um, the question, yeah, the question of why, because as, pa- as Pat has pointed out, the National Maternity, Ho- the new hospital, is not going to be the only hospital in the country by any stretch of the imagination that has some kind of a religious presence in the background, if you want to put it that way, and neither is it just hospitals. Look at our schools. You know, this is not a particularly unusual case. It's a very, very emotional one. I think it's tied up with a lot of current issues. Obviously abortion is coming up and we're hearing talk about sterilisation and all these other practices. Uh, And yes, there are some questions, I suppose, uh, for Peter Boylan, had had he not foreseen the way this was going. But he remains adamant now that he, he claims this new hospital will be subject to uh, Catholic interference um, through through the ownership by the Sisters of Charity. Now, Rona Mahoney was pressed on that this morning with the repeat, repeated question, "What are the religious getting out of this?" Mm-hmm. When she appeared on Morning Ireland, now she you could hear in her voice that she was getting really quite frustrated because, uh, from her point of view her answer is nothing but there, there's still kind of there's a public uncertainty I think well, it goes there, there, without there saying are legitimate
0: questions about I mean I, I understand and correct me if I'm wrong that for example that the building of the the uh, private hospital on the Saint Vincent's campus campus was to some extent underwritten by the assets which existed on the campus, which, as Pat has already said, were assets which had been largely paid for and built up over the years by the state. So there is a question about ownership there, even
2: regardless of the whole. Yeah. There's know, also the ethos an question that um, I, Una Malali in, in in our paper and others pose that why right. do the nuns want to own? An, uh, a maternity hospital and if you look at it uh, uh, another way I think it was Brian Clough in in relation to the offside rule who said you know if a player isn't interfering with play what's he doing on the pitch in the first place <laughs> and you know so there is that question uh, I, I, I think now to be fair, I'm, I'm, I, think, to be fair I think the response to that is number one that Vincent's didn't particularly
0: want this hospital no, and had, to be, and, and had to be persuaded to take it on the campus and once they were persuaded they felt that there were logistical and practical reasons why the entire campus needed to remain under a single you know, governance, I suppose.
2: There is a question as to why they want to, uh, to own it. Is it in relation to, clini- uh, to inter- clinical interference? I'm not sure there is any evidence really to, uh, to suggest that the nuns wish to impose their ethos or interfere in the clinical governance of the new hospital. I I, I don't see any hard evidence for that. But the fact of their insistence on ownership obviously gives rise to that question.
1: Yeah, having said that, you know, the optics are bad and I'm certainly picking up a little bit of surprise in government circles that Rona Mahoney agreed to this initially. Not that she believes the nuns will, you know, storm in and intervene, she doesn't believe that, but because of the optics of it, I've heard that she she feels she's got a good deal because the mastership of the, of the new hospital will be retained and, uh, you know as I've said, there is this extreme urgency, this real need for a new hospital. I understand that our youthful Minister for Health, who wouldn't have troubled a maternity hospital for quite a few decades now, but when he, I think it was the first hospital he visited when he became Minister and he, he got the shock of his life, I think, mm-hmm. when he saw what was what was going on in there.
2: In his defence, I got the shock of my life the first <laughs> I time I went into a lot of in maternity hospital. I, well. I think, to be honest, everybody who goes into a maternity <laughs>
0: hospital gets the shock of their life. But he's calling when,
1: when, for cool heads in, this in, morning. In, anyway.
0: in one form or another, I know. I certainly, I know. I certainly did. Anyway, um, just before we move on to the, uh, we're going to move on to the question of the Eighth Amendment in a couple of minutes. Just, it is a quiet week this week, Pat. But is it all going to kick off next week? Is it? Are we finally going to starters' guns at the ready uh,
2: with the Finnegal leadership and therefore the T ship? Well, sooner or later, we will be right in our predictions uh, about uh, <laughs> about this contest. Getting underway, The Taoiseach has uh, indicated, I think, that he will give some indication as to or he will throw some light as to his um, intentions vis-a-vis the leadership uh, when he returns from the summit of European leaders, which takes place in, in Brussels uh, this Saturday. Unfortunately, however, he won't be around for next week's Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting as uh, he's making a, uh, a visit to Canada uh, next week. Lucky Canada. So it will be the following week uh, before, assuming no further trips, So, assuming there isn't a state visit to Disneyland or anything the following week. Got, uh, is he taking the piss? Wait a minute.
1: What day is the PP? Wednesday. The Canadian trip is Thursday, isn't it? Is it or going on Wednesday? Rides.
2: Maybe it's going on Wednesday. It's a long way to Canada. Oh, well, it is quite course, far.
1: Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, we're tying ourselves up in knots, Hugh, trying uh, to I, I, ask I, the Taoiseach in new ways. <laughs> you know, when I was in The Hague on Friday and I got to ask all the, obviously once the questions about, uh, it was the this, the mini summit with mm-hmm. Denmark and the Netherlands. And so there were a lot of pressing questions about fish, obviously, but uh, obviously I had to Oregon, ask the Taoiseach yeah. about. <laughs> so I asked the Taoiseach, you know, he hadn't commented actually on Theresa May's um, shock announcement of the this, uh, this snap British general election. So I asked him in a very convoluted way, would could the Irish people take hope that uh, this snap British genera- general election might make for a softer Brexit? And uh, if so, would he be the Taoiseach who might be the one who would shake hands with Theresa May when presumably she... Uh, emerged victorious and he... On the ninth of June. He wagged his finger and said, that's a loaded question, which, you know, hands up it was. But um, yes, yet again, he said that he would... It, it he is somewhat he'd comic made,
2: at this point, isn't it?
1: I think if... We're in a circling kind of pattern, no, aren't we? but I mean,
2: so? you know, I think if the Taoiseach attempts to go through the next few weeks without yeah. announcing his departure, I think the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party will make it clear to him... That their patience has run out. Remember that Enda Kenny indicated to them back in February, in the wake of the Garda controversy, that he was going to go. That is the meaning that everybody in the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party took out of it. I what he wanted to, he to, to he do with that, he would that make
0: point. the position clear on his return from Washington. I, 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 understood. Yes, State, he did, so. and understood then,
2: by uh, by everybody in the room to mean uh, a sign of a medium term departure. Yeah. He has now put the distance between him and that controversy that he wished to do there is a subterranean leadership contest going on there is rising impatience within the Fine Gael parliamentary party can we say that it will reach a conclusion you know on tuesday week or on wednesday week or will it be the week after that I don't think we can at this stage but I do think that patience with the Definitely. Taoiseach will run out over the coming weeks unless he makes his in, uh, intentions
1: clear. I mean, Fine Gael is a very polite party. That's its, its main characteristic uh, but I don't think the backbenchers would let him out of the room really at the next but one parliamentary party meeting if he doesn't make his intentions clear at last. I think stand up
0: and make a call, you know, stand up oh, and so. publicly call I, for I him do think it. so I and think that's from... I think you're
1: approaching that point. From speaking to quite mild-mannered gentlemen on the backbenches, you know, but I think he has put sufficient space between himself and the original Garda controversy now uh, so that his departure wouldn't be forever associated with that.
2: I think that's right and I think that was his principal in at the time.
0: Now, on Sunday, the Citizens' Assembly, which is a group of 100 people selected as a demographically representative reflection of the voters of this country, concluded its deliberations on what changes if any should be made to the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution prohibiting access to abortion in nearly all circumstances in Ireland. The final recommendations of the Assembly were greeted with surprise in some quarters, with acclamation in others, and indeed with horror by some others again. The widespread view is that the Assembly's recommendations, which will now be considered by a new Oireachtas Committee were considerably more liberal than was anticipated. Uh, Pat and Mary are sticking with us to discuss this further in a moment. But first, I talked earlier to two representatives of the of the pro-life movement. Uh, Brida O'Brien will be familiar to you as an Irish Times columnist and she's also patron of the Iona Institute. And Cora Sherlock represents the pro-life campaign. Brida, we're only a couple of days since the uh, Citizens' Assembly completed its deliberations on the question of the Eighth Amendment in terms of the overall political landscape and where this narrative is now, on the eve of the Oroctus Committee being set up, what do you think the landscape is in Ireland in terms of public opinion and the political realities of what's likely to happen?
3: Well, in terms of looking at the public opinion, it is so far in advance of where public opinion is that it's quite stunning, really. Like, I was just looking at the list of where they want no time limits, for example that's in the case of the threats to the life of the mother in the case of suicide serious risk to physical health serious risk to mental health serious risk to health and then risk to uh, and then um, so called fatal fetal abnormality no time limits so that's 40 weeks um, and and it just is not representative, and I wonder: are the politicians thinking, "Be careful what you wish for," because I do think there was a certain amount of kicking to touch going on when they set up the citizens' assembly, and this is such an extraordinary result which no one predicted, no one saw coming. Um, I think it's it's led to a very difficult situation. Now Personally, I'm appalled by it, but I also don't think it has been a very um, democratic process or a lot of very people useful. People said they're
0: surprised by it as well. Are yeah. you are you, you surprised by the by how liberal it is?
3: I am surprised and shocked, really, by how liberal it is. And how do you
0: think that, why and how do you think that might have happened?
3: Um, I think the people who, um, I think, first of all, I think the point has been made quite often that you can't put 100 people into a room and expect them to be representative. But also, we're very familiar with a phenomenon called groupthink, which is where people gradually begin to go towards the consensus. And when you have very strong personalities, that's a a particular difficulty. And if I don't think it was a particularly democratic exercise in the first place, but if you were going to put 99 people into a room to discuss this, you would have to take major safeguards to safeguard against groupthink. But instead, what we got was priming. Um, which leads people in a particular direction. I have huge respect for Morris Manning, um, but his first, the first speech of the assembly was: "Have the courage to bring about change. Um, don't uh, feel you have to please older people like me. But you know, do what you have to do. You're responsible to no one but yourself. You're not going to have to face press conferences. You're not going to have to praise, face the doll or an electorate. You can, you can basically do what you wish. So that was setting the scene immediately. That change is what we are looking for here. And then when you look at the selection of people who spoke there and were presented as, I suppose, international experts with no qualification or pointing out that they had quite serious um, agendas in relation um, to abortion and quite serious records um, sometimes in the case of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, quite, um, you know, troubling records in relation to even the health of women. None of this was adverted to. They were presented as impartial experts. So the whole thing, far from trying to prevent groupthink, was actually, I think, quite in, in quite a, a disturbing fashion, being geared towards a particular result. But I think the result itself was more radical than anyone expected, and um, if you were following the tweets of pro choice people on on Twitter at, at the initial thing when it didn 't go for repeal, you could see that there was great anger and then suddenly, when they began to realize this is repeal with boots on um, the the tone of the tweets changed completely and,
0: and, and I remember observing that myself. Um but I, I did wonder at the time, Cora. I, I watched exactly those tweets from people on the repeal on the repeal the Eighth side, and it seemed to me that I was looking at a, at at a group of people who, uh, who first of all were delighted with, the, with 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 the first decision, which was that some change was required, and then became furious about the second decision because they thought it didn't occur with their point of view, and then became happy again, and. Couldn't the contrary be said on the other side? Wasn't this always going to be viewed as a sort of zero-sum game by people on, on opposite sides of the argument? And is it possible as well that one of the explanations that that some people on the repeal the eighth side have given for how liberal the decision is, is that because these people were trapped in a room really face-to-face with the realities of this of this case in a way that most people haven't been uh, for, for as long a period of time, that they that that's what actually put them in the, in the direction that they ended up going. As opposed to being uh, manipulated as I suppose is being suggested.
3: Sorry, could I clarify there here? I'm not yeah. saying they're deliberately being manipulated but But
0: effectively being manipulated I well, suppose. Well,
3: What is happening is that, there, that nothing was done to prevent groupthink and in fact a lot of things were done to cause groupthink. Um, But whether that was deliberate or whether it was simply carelessness or whether it was inability to listen to voices from another side who are saying um, you're going to get the result, um, you're going to get a very radical result if you continue with this, if you continue not to listen to the voices. I think manipulation is a very serious allegation. I'm just saying that there are questions to be asked about the way the Assembly was actually working. Would it be
0: fair to say that you you would see unconscious biases at the very least? Yes, that's that's much
3: fairer. That's much fairer, I think, conscious biases and not really being aware of, um, not really looking at the whole way that groups operate.
0: Do you think it would have been possible, because I know that you are equally critical of, of, of how this process was, was handled, Cora, do you think it would have been possible from your point of view to have a fairer process? Do you think the citizens assembly, assembly process could ever have uh, been more satisfactory from your perspective?
4: Well, what we said at the beginning was that the process was very clearly just a, an, an intentional way to pave the way to a referendum and we were going on what people were saying, people who supported it. So, you know, that was the way it was set out to begin with. But we entered into it in good faith. The Pro-Life campaign made a, made a presentation um, and I attended most of the sessions, including this weekend. Um, and what I would say is that it was very possible to conduct it in a fairer way. I would go so far as to say that it was managed, that the members were managed. Managed in a certain way, what I would say is that listeners, anyone who wants to get an idea of what this assembly was like, should watch the videos of this well, last weekend. It's mm. all there to watch. Mm. And you really should watch them because you get some idea of, you know, really the... The chaotic nature of it—that's what it was. It was chaotic, managed, um, and a really a shambles. <coughs> and it, you know, it's it's quite shocking that something like the the right to life, the most important right in our constitution, should have been put on trial in the way that it was. So,
0: in the in the famous words of the Irish politician, "We are where we are." That this process has now concluded. The Oroctus committee process, uh, I mean, what you referred to, I think, Breeda, some sort of justification as a potential part of this can kicking down 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 the road, now begins with. Uh, we understand its marching orders are to report back to the to the Oireachtas by by the end of the year. How do you see that going over the next over the next few weeks and months?
3: I'm sorry to say I've no faith in it as an exercise because I engaged with complete sincerity um, in the exercise uh, that we took part in before the Orwellian named uh, Protection of Life and Pregnancy Act, and it was really people engaged in it with complete sincerity it was a respectful process it was a well managed process from the point of view of people being given equal time and whatever and not a single thing that was said from our point of view had any impact whatsoever on the outcome. That undermines your faith in democracy. I don't know whether they're going to go through the same thing again. You would, um, you know, whether they're going to have hearings, whether they're going to have people uh, come in with that that questions then why, you know, the whole citizens' uh, assembly um, thing. But is there not the
0: opportunity for some redress of that from your perspective now if we're entering into a a new process?
3: Only if it's listened to. And if you're going into it with the understanding that our options is, do we have, our option is is whether we have a little bit of change or a large amount of change, um, that's not a fair process because the the alternative which is that you actually are proud of the fact that you have this unique thing in your constitution which actually says that all human lives are equal, no matter how tiny, no matter how vulnerable um, and that is something we should be proud of and we should protect. If that isn't there on the table, then how can it be fair?
0: Poll after poll now over the last year or two years or so have shown really that that but the position which yourself and Cora are, are expressing, which is retention in its current form of of the Eighth Amendment, is a position which is only held now by by quite a small minority of the Irish people, somewhere around fifteen percent maximum.
3: Um, I, I don't know. Um, opinion polls, opinion polls are opinion polls. They show what people think at a particular moment, and in the there's certainly been a slippage in support there's no question of that but then you have to ask yourself do you look at matters of life and death according to an opinion poll, do you say, do you look at the values that you have in your constitution and say well we don't like them today and so we'll get rid of them like I, I look back for example at say things like the citizenship rep- referendum and uh, you know, would think it was regrettable that some of the decisions were made in which, which were made at the time um, they it's not that I'm anti-democracy, but I think there is a difference between, there are certain things which we don't revisit. We don't, for example, look at the right to life of grown people uh, every 10 years and say, well, do we still think they have a right to life? Or we don't look at the right to education every 10 years and say, well, do we think we still should provide you know primary and secondary education? No, but there is a
0: reality that in both those instances, those are um, those are rights which are held in other, all other countries in the EU, for example, but whereas there is a division uh, on, on, on this particular issue, which is which is quite separate, and, and generally, actually, Ireland is, a, is an outlier. Now, I'm sure in your view, correctly, an outlier, a outlier. and that's a, and that's a that's a positive yeah, fact. Yeah. But the, the reality does appear to show that, that. And I'm not suggesting anybody should just go chasing after opinion polls to dictate their own morality. That the view of the country has changed quite substantially over the last decade or so.
3: If, if I don't know how much it has actually changed because we have a difficult situation in Ireland in that there is a fear um, of expressing views that go against the mainstream. Um, I don't think it's peculiarly Irish. I think it's in a lot of different societies, not just in Ireland, but there's and there's definitely a lot of what you might call out group stereotyping, the people who are not popular at the time are all seen to be the same and that they're regressive or that they're, they're whatever. Um, so I think it is difficult. The real, it, it hasn't been tested how much um, people actually really want to retain um, the 8th. And I think when people start I, I think this will, the Citizens Assembly will appall people because it makes the British regime look, re, you know, because there are things here um, which are not uh, allowed in Britain currently up, up to birth. Um, and uh, it's, it's I, I, I think we would be appalled by that. I think they will start to look again and say, well, is what we have so awful? Like what we do need, we do need much more support for women who are pregnant in difficult circumstances. We need much more support for people who've got really... Um, terrifying and worrying diagnosis for the babies in the womb. We need to do an awful lot on that level and we could do an awful lot more on that level. But to remove the protection that's there, I don't, I don't think. I'm not sure that the appetite is there as strongly as the opinion polls would pretend. Cora,
0: do you think we'll be facing into a referendum on this issue?
4: No, I don't think that's inevitable at all. Um what you asked at the beginning, um, Hugh, was what's the public mood? Well, I would say the public mood, and this ties into the opinion polls idea, is uh, the, the public mood at the moment is very much confusion. And I think confusion leads to this idea that we have to have a referendum. Um, we have to have change. You know, that was said at the beginning of the of the Assembly in a speech. Um, but the problem is that we, we are kind of our default position is to think that that change has to be a change to remove the Eighth Amendment. Uh, that's a very radical change and it's a very radical change which in other countries like in England has led to a situation where they have no protection and one in five pregnancies ends in abortion. Um, so what about a radical positive change? What about some of those things that Bree is talking about? Imagine if we'd had a Citizens Assembly that looked at the problems of homeless pregnant women that's in this country. There is
0: also a reality that there are uh, a substantial number of people, at least as many people who believe in retaining the age in its, in its, in its Current form, there is a substantial larger amount of people who believe in removing the 8th for the reasons for, for, for the reasons that the repeal of the eighth campaign have uh, have articulated, plus there is a gray area between between those two polls as well. I mean, that is a reality, isn't it?
4: You know, I'm, I'm the first person to say let's face the reality. But what I'm saying is I don't think we're doing that at the moment. What I'm hopeful about, uh, like Breda says, is that the Assembly uh, results is going to make people... I think it's going to be a bit of a wake-up call for the public. I think they are going to be shocked um, by what has come out. Personally, I wasn't shocked. I wasn't remotely surprised because if you sat in um, and watched what was happening as the Assembly uh, sessions took place... It was very clear. It was being moved in one direction constantly. You've,
0: you, you've made clear that you, that you thought that this system was, was, was rigged to deliver an outcome. I think that's, that's fair to say, isn't it? Yes. Well, then what, what is the next outcome? If, now that this element of the process is finished, is it not inevitable in your view, given that that is your view, that we're going to move through the committee process to a proposal to, uh, I'm not quite sure now, whether it's going to be to repeal, re- repeal or alter the Eighth Amendment?
4: You know, I don't. I don't think that it's going to be inevitable that we have a referendum to do any of those things. Um,
0: What would stop that happening?
4: Well, I think what would stop it happening would be if every member who is going to who is going to sit on the Arachtos committee sat down first and watched the chaos that took place on taxpayers' money this last weekend. And I suppose the thing,
0: taking that point, and you have you have made that Mm. point, and it's taken on taken on board. Now we're going into this new process. What happened in the Citizens Assembly, whatever one's view of it is, is not binding in in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the committee will have to read it and look at the documentation, but no more than that. They are politicians who have their own views and their own constituencies. I think we have a, we're starting to get a sense of who's going to be who's going to sit on that committee. Some of them clearly have strong pro-life views. Some of them clearly have strong views on the on the other side of the argument. Mm. Where is that process going to lead?
3: I, th- I think there's a pro- um I think there's a problem with the, the process in that you're saying there's some people with pro life views but politicians are politicians and they're going to be looking at the last people who express strong views in this and it's a kind of a where are they now um, you know I think personally one of the most disgraceful ep- episodes in in Irish politics what happened to people who actually stood up for their convictions we're always saying we want politicians to be people you know of high moral ca- caliber and when they are we just you know that's the end of their careers and I think that's a problem um, I, I I'm, I'm not as confident um really that the, that there won't be a referendum and that there won't be a referendum which is, you know, kind of Hobson's choice. Um, you know, you can have this or you can have that and neither of them are satisfactory neither of them give a real genuine... Um, for example, like, I, I, I don't want to go back over how the Citizens' Assembly um, uh Happened, But I think there's something which hasn't been fully grasped, really, which is that if you accepted the recommendation of the Assembly just on the mechanics of it, that what you're putting into the Constitution is we trust politicians henceforth to to legislate for abortion that's what you're actually putting in there people have been saying we have to see the legislation but that's not the key thing if they went that route for example that's not the key thing the key thing is, is that in perpetuity the, the people who can who can decide on this are the legislature um, and that's that's quite a scary prospect because even if you had um, and I would still be think it, it really breached a really vital principle if you had so-called limited legislation. That legislation could be changed, you know, um, when, you know, say Ruth Coppinger or Minister for Health or whatever. Um, so, so, the I think if this if this process I would love to see it actually coming out with a really strong endorsement of the eighth amendment I can't see it doing that well, I it's would love it unlikely it's to very unlikely the composition of the it's extremely unlikely
0: and, and the, the, the views of the country really, but but
3: it? if it is going um you know as core says it isn't inevitable but I think it is likely um they if it is going to move in that direction what people have to be given is a fair chance a fair campaign um, uh, a fair you know, fair media, uh, which which is actually a difficulty. It is a difficulty mm-hmm. that that um, it's it's so unusual for somebody who has pro life views to be active in in the media and in a way that allows people to see that. Whereas it's not. Um, I mean, I think the the old like I think that there's a danger now that media people see themselves as players rather than seeing them as. Well, but there is. I mean,
0: every debate that I've heard on this issue since since Sunday uh, and the broadcast media. Has included a representative of the pro- pro-life voice. I mean, I was listening to you, you yourself, Cora, on uh, on on Sean on on Monday morning, and equally, I think I think you've been busy. Actually, were you were you on uh, Late Debate as well in RT? No, uh, I wasn't. on no. i, Vincent, I
4: yeah. You're on
0: Vincent yeah. Brown, yeah. yeah. They all get mixed up, But <laughs> yeah, do but you know what I mean. It's 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 not true to say that 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 these voices are silenced. In fact, to my knowledge, broadcasters, you know. Well, 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 even even before there's a campaign, broadcasters feel feel, feel constrained, don't they? I don't
3: think if you look at coverage over the past while, I mean, the balance is enormously in one direction. Um, And I'm not so much talking about broadcast media, really. Um, I I think that's going to have to be an issue that, that people are treated fairly, that there isn't a kind of, you know, well, you know, you're from this organisation so you would think that wouldn't you kind of attitude which you, which you hear quite a lot um, a kind of a dismissing and uh, one tactic I think which is going to be re- really um, worrying is, is one we've seen before which, which actually gradually moves the centre which is that you present people who, who are on one point as extreme and the other point as extreme and the reasonable people are in the middle which sounds great and it sounds very logical and, and plausible but if you apply it to rape it doesn't. It doesn't look quite so. It doesn't look quite so plausible. Or you look to anywhere where people's lives are are being threatened because of their belief or because of what are, else? the the mid The centre doesn't always have the right answer. But isn't that is
0: really largely a reflection of number one, how fraught this particular issue is, on for 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 people and serious emotional investment Absolutely. on both sides of the debate, and also that it's it's not really a completely valid comparison there, because there are no, there is no debate in any other country in the. EU about whether or not rape should be legalised for example. So there is a real cultural, okay. philosophical legitimate divide over this particular issue and the rights and wrongs of it but in a way that there isn't over the examples that you It's interesting that
3: you say there is no debate in the EU because that's consensus thinking. That's saying that, that you know, that, that no, if...
0: No, 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 I'm not saying there's no debate but I'm saying that there is a debate. There's a legitimate debate is what I'm saying. Whereas there isn't a legitimate debate over rape.
3: Okay, well maybe rape isn't the best one to take but if you take say immigration for example, um their, you know, their extreme polarised views in relation to to, to that as well um, and that's not a good example to take either, I'm going to retract that one because it's not a good example because there might be some things to be said to be in the centre in that one the point that I'm making is the automatic assumption that if you go in the middle of an argument you then have the right is a dangerous assumption a lot of the time and whether it's contested or it's uncontested that is, the, all the time we're operating out of mental frames, we can't help it we can't help it. Um, it's the way it's the way humans have evolved, I suppose, as, as tribal beings up to the, the centuries. We're always operating through through, through frameworks. But you, if you're conscious of those, you can do something about being biased in favour of them. So, if, for example, a television presenter says, "Oh well, you're very extreme, and you're very extreme, and let me talk to you, and you're in the middle, and you're a good person," then the alarm bell should go off in their head and say, "Well, that's not automatically right." Or if you say to somebody, you know, "Well, you should, you would think that, wouldn't you?" Because where you're coming from, is that fair? Should I look at the validity of their argument? You know, even a stopped clock is right twice a day, is it possible no matter where they're coming from that they actually have a point on this issue? I think that takes an enormous amount of brain glucose. It actually requires thinking. It requires moving outside your in-group and looking at the out-group, not as these strange beings, but as actually people who have the same kind of high moral standards as you have yourself and the same kind of um, desire to do the right thing and to accept their bona fides, but also to to be able to stand over what you you actually believe.
0: I think I I accept quite a lot of that. And I think the critique of the media is something that that that, that critique of the media can be can be applied in other circumstances as well. But one of the things, Cora, and maybe finally perhaps if you if you if you wouldn't mind on this in relation to this debate is when, when when I see it, regardless of what my own particular views are on it it's very often deeply unproductive. I hear people on one side or the other of, of it. I wouldn't even dignify it with the phrase an argument. It's it, it, what, we, what we hear is, is an exchange of blows which are not productive to somebody neutral or somebody trying to figure out what their view is uh, listening to it on a radio programme or whatever it might be. My fear is that that's exactly how any Political process, be it around this committee process which is about to happen, or indeed, put, put some potential referendum that that will happen after that. That that's what it will be like, uh, and in fact, that's 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 the way this debate has always been framed in Ireland.
4: Yeah, I think there is a problem with the way the debate um, continues and I think that you know whether you look at the media um, and I don't like to to talk all the time about media bias, but it is an issue I mean there was a Shanna debate about uh, RT Radio 1 having 81 minutes for the pro-choice side and four minutes for the pro-life side in just one month you could pick pretty much any month and um, I know some days are better than others but but that's uh, that's the reality and that's kind of an ongoing problem I think that the the debate in Ireland needs to become more human and more humane and what I mean by that it needs to actually look at the human beings who are involved. The Eighth Amendment has saved lives. At a conservative estimate, it saved tens of thousands of lives, and we need to get over this idea that it hasn't done anything good
0: Do you on the bona of the repeal, the eighth campaigners who are talking about women's lives. That's,
4: you know, I think that there are an awful lot of very well-intentioned people on the on the other side, if you like, of this debate. But the reality is that I wouldn't be involved, and I'm sure Breeda would agree with me. We're two women; we wouldn't be involved in this debate if we thought there was the remotest chance of the eighth amendment being a danger to women. That is one of the uh, confusions. And that's one of the myths that has been allowed to spread. And the one thing I hope going forward is that that kind of a myth will be dispelled because we can't have a debate um, in the atmosphere of fear, of, of, of scaremongering, of uh, false facts. Let's get into real facts because that's that's the only place we can have a decision. And that's the one thing that I, I was so disappointed about um, with the decision that we are now at. And we are at a, a really, you know, like we say, a radical recommendation has been given I don't think the politicians wanted that at all I think they're going to have to try to to, you know we've heard them say and commentators say that it's not politically saleable it's not politically saleable because one thing that all of the opinion polls show is that people do not want uh, a wide ranging abortion that's what the Citizens Assembly has come back with Is it
0: too Machiavellian to suggest that a a proposal which is not politically saleable might actually benefit um, those people in favour of retaining the aid?
4: Well that's what they want you know people who want people who are honest uh, about repealing the 8th will say that they they do not want um, they don't want limited abortion no,
0: but from from your point of view as a retained on the retain the 8th position mm-hmm. is it not is it not potentially politically beneficial to retaining the 8th from your perspective if, if, if the proposals are more liberal
4: uh, you know i mean i'm i'm happy with honesty i'm happy with people who say this is what we want but i'm not happy with this this like brenda says again the uh, middle of the road thing which says we can have restrictive abortion when we know that that just isn't a reality. Um, just in the point that you're making there, will it fi-
3: play in favour of those who want to retain the eighth? Unfortunately I think it's going to have the opposite effect because anything is going to look moderate in comparison to abortion up to birth on physical health, mental health, you know um, you know, abortion up to 22 weeks for... Phys- anything is going to look moderate but it is necessarily moderate. Um, so I think in fact it's going to have the opposite and if you were being Machiavellian you could think well you know if you're going... I, if If you're going looking for a pay rise, which um, very few of us have done, God forbid, forbid, (laughs) um, that uh, you go in and you pitch, you pitch it very high and you hope that it's going to come down a bit. So I think it's much more likely to it's much more likely to favour those who want rid of the Eighth Amendment than it is um, to favour those who want to retain it. And uh, that's 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 a huge fear that I have that in a sense that if uh, something that is quite frankly appalling.
0: Uh, Brida and Cora, thanks very much indeed for coming in today. So uh, Pat and Mary are, are still with us. Pat, is is O'Brien right there when she talks? She suggests I think that the, although the deliberations of the assembly are in no way binding on what happens now in the political process, that 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 it may go some way towards reframing the debate the, the debate or framing it as it unfolds over the next 12 months
1: or so well,
2: i'm not sure that it reframes the debate but it certainly i think begins it at a slightly different point at a significantly different point really than uh, than people had anticipated so that the, the 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 process that will take place now is that the report of the assembly when it is written by the judge and sent to the Oroctus, which is due to happen by the end of June it may happen a little bit before that, that will go to a special Eroctus committee whose uh, full membership has not been uh, yet decided but will uh, will be comprised of uh, I think 23 TDs and uh, and senators, both houses passed resolutions before the Easter break. so I suppose what most people anticipated. And certainly, what the politicians themselves anticipated was that some sort of a recommendation for limited reform uh, of Ireland's abortion laws would be uh, concluded. Uh, by the, the assembly and sent to them for discussion instead a much more radical change in uh, uh, in the law governing abortion has been recommended by the citizens assembly now that is not binding it has no decisive or executive power but what it does is that it starts the conversation that will take place at the committee at a more uh, a more liberal point I think, uh, than would previously have been the case. Now, that is not to say that the committee will be bound by its recommendations or that its only function is to see how those recommendations would be transferred into law. So, uh, but it, it, it doesn't have to do that. It will make up its own mind on what its recommendations to government and to the rest of the Oireachtas are. And then government and the Oireachtas will have to decide themselves. Firstly if they wish to put a referendum, though that seems at this stage to be a foregone conclusion, uh, if they do decide that, what sort of a referendum what is the wording of the referendum what does it seek to do, does it seek to repeal completely the Eighth Amendment or does it seek as the Assembly recommended that some sort of amendment to Article 43.3 enabling or mandating the Oireachtas to legislate for abortion is made. That is, is a slightly convoluted way, I think, of going, uh, uh, of going about it. Nevertheless, that is that is for the committee, although, although and ultimately the doll, uh, the doll to decide, and then the question comes back to the people. So there are yes. yet three stages to be gone through: committee, eructus. And the electors. And there's the whole uh, question uh, that no, not just.
0: And in a way, to, to, to my surprise, the decision on on Saturday, Mary, mm-hmm. that uh, or the recommendation of the assembly that it would be a replace rather than repeal was the was was the preferred option. And it was fascinating to follow this on Saturday afternoon on Twitter, as I was doing on the hashtag. Not anybody, and necessarily with any particular perspective on it. The overall hashtag Citizens Assembly, although. To be fair, it was dominated by repeal the eighth mm. uh, people that that feed that there was a there was a hugely enthusiastic welcome for the for the first um, point, which was that, that 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 the constitution absolutely needed to be changed. There was an incredibly negative reaction to the second point, which was that it should be replaced rather than repeal. And suddenly, the citizens' assembly was a dog's dinner and unrepresentative and women hating. And then there was a huge wave back again when it became clear that this recommendation to repeal was actually seeking to copper fasten the uh, the right of the Oireachtas mm-hmm. to do whatever it's, whatever it's off it. And what I took away from that was that, you know, people look at this, it's like a Rorschach test, and if it comes out with their, you know, with with, yeah. their, with what they wanted to, to happen, well, then it's a good thing, and if it's not, it doesn't.
1: Sure, I mean, you weren't the only one to be surprised, Hugh. I think it was, uh, it really did shock the, or stun the political establishment and, and plenty of other interested parties as well. You know, I think something like this, Citizens Assembly, which, you know, you have to suspect with very, very sensitive issues like this, may have been set up to kind of kick the can down the road, may have had a very surprising and in fact an opposite uh, effect but I suppose we should be getting getting used to these shocks with Trump and Brexit and the snap British general election Le Pen and so on you know it's been a a time of of a lot of surprise in in political life and there's a lot of talk about how these rather radical uh, proposals that came out from the Citizens Assembly whether or not they reflect what we see in polls and they do not I suppose is the simple answer but
2: there's uh, no reason of course why they should but but uh, uh, but they, they don't. The state of public opinion on the question, as suggested by or as depicted by polls in our own uh, newspaper, uh, at least, is a good deal more conservative than... Um, Although,
0: can I just put a, point here,
2: put a point here on that? Because the point was made by some people, particularly on the repeal of
0: the Eighth side, that actually if you put people in a room for several months and, and confront them with the in-depth uh, realities of thinking through the consequences of certain decisions, well, then they may be more likely to come to the sort of, the sort of conclusions which, 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 the, which the Assembly came to. So, so that's but one thing. That's, I that's agree. the
2: fascinating question about what, this, uh, about what this means, I think. It's not how representative or otherwise the 100 people at the Citizens' Assembly are. It is what is the impact of a lengthy debate and uh, exposure to the evidence. Well, I think
1: a very simple explanation about the discrepancies between polls and the Citizens' Assembly, if you like, could simply be that because these citizens, these uh, reasonable members of society selected by a poll company, 99 of them, uh, sat for a very long time and considered all these things with experts from both sides, to use that that rhetoric. Uh, you know, they're considerably more informed at the end of a process than uh, the average man or woman who happens to pick up his or her landline uh, when called by a polling company. Although Bobrida
0: and Cora also suggested that they were manipulated, essentially, as well.
1: Well, uh, I mean, uh, they were also a very small group. That does have to be stressed. So whether or not we can say that they're representative, I don't suppose we can. But, you know, small groups, juries are small groups, which are made sure, up of reasonable members are, of society, and they take very important uh, decisions. Uh,
2: of course. Uh, 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 of course they do. But it, it it kind of, I think it slightly misunderstands. There's been a good bit of confusion about this since the weekend. It misunderstands the representative nature of the 100 people, Maybe you could to think, suggest yes. Uh, to suggest that they are directly representative on political questions of the. They were chosen uh, by Red Sea, which is a polling company. Yeah, they were chosen, and I actually read through all the uh, the selection methodology um, for uh, a piece I did in the paper a few few days ago. And they are select they were selected quite rigorously to be representative of the population in terms of demographics. So there is the right number, uh, the rightly represent correctly representative number of women and men and the various age cohorts and urban and rural and a spread around the the four major regions um, uh, of the country but if you were to seek to get a, a group of people that would be politically representative yeah. of the country on, within a, an acceptable margin of error on questions such as voting intention on general elections or on referendums on questions like abortion. You need a much bigger sample. So our polls uh, for, uh, for for our paper conducted by Ipsos MRBI has a sample of 1,200 people. That gives you a representative sample within margin of error of about 2.7%. Uh, Most polling companies would use slightly. Like a smaller sample, say about a thousand. But you need that number of people sure. to get a representative sample. And, and people, the subject of some discussion on Liveline and RTE yesterday well. As one well.
1: thing that's very important for TDs, of course, is geography, you know. And I've heard Matty McGrath, who's very clearly anti-abortion, uh, and he's he he was giving out terribly that the Citizens' Assembly didn't have any representatives from his Tipperary constituency on it. Now, I'm not uh, claiming for a minute that, you know, your views on abortion are going to be dictated by your Boundary. I mean, of course, they are not. But some rural TDs are arguing that they reflect their constituents, and I'm, I'm sure they do reflect their views of the, the, the constituents do, that come to the, them on this issue.
2: The it it. it I, I think there's again a fundamental misunderstanding uh, about that, and we should bear in mind, of course, that people you, both sides of this debate. Uh, you know are peopled by individuals who are sincere and committed and very determined for, in many cases, the best of reasons to achieve their desired outcome. And anything that doesn't serve their desired outcome they will uh, they well, will criticise and seek to undermine. But the role of people at the assembly is not to represent Tipperary. Mm-hmm. or Carrick Macross mm-hmm. or anywhere else. It is simply as a typical citizen living in a rural area or an urban area of a particular age, a particular gender, a particular social class and a certain cohort of those are there. They are not there as representatives of their Before we wrap it
0: up, I just want to put one question to, to, to both of you if you don't mind because this is, it seems to me, is the real nub of the political question for the political establishment and the political system. And that is that actually there is a, a high level of agreement between the repeal the eighth side and the pro-life side, if I may characterize them as such, on one, on the most single most important core issue, which is really that you can't have just a little bit of abortion. The repeal the eighth side argued that that from their point of view, a woman's right to choose implies a certain number of inalienable rights, which really mean, I don't like the phrase abortion on demand, but access to access to abortion in a broad range of circumstances. The people on the pro-life side argue the same thing, that the idea of restrictive abortion doesn't actually work in practical terms and it's a thin end of the wedge and it opens the door and the logical consequence is what the repeal the outside is looking for. The, the, the nature of a political process is politicians always search for compromise and the middle ground is it possible that there is no middle ground here and that we're going to have these circular conversations around frankly ridiculous subjects like
2: you know what does in the case of rape mean
0: but when when, when that is just not achievable in any in
2: any real world yeah no world, no logically terms? there is no middle ground between those two absolutes because they center around the status of the unborn child fetus whatever you want to call it if as pro-life people believe it is a human person, then it, uh, it is in possession of inalienable human rights, uh, which mean at the very least that it cannot, be, uh, it cannot be killed in an abortion. If it is not a person with those rights, as people on the pro-repeal side believe, then it is a matter of bodily autonomy, uh, autonomy and integrity uh, for women. So there is no compromise between those two positions but, if you look at and you look at polls and you talk to people, you will see that an awful lot of people in some respects they hold those two positions, mm. and their preferred compromise because there will be some sort of a compromise, and even people at the you know at the at the, uh, at the most committed end of the uh, pro choice spectrum would admit in most cases to some restrictions on abortion in terms of time limits uh, and that there will be a compromise which offers people uh, some sort of limited access to abortion in Ireland. The unanswered question, and the question that I don't think there is an answer to at this stage yet, until that process is undergone, is where will the great middle ground of the Irish electorate uh, choose to to rest on that? And that's the process that is now beginning to find out what is acceptable. And also, very,
0: in relation to that, it's it's more than a
2: two-step process, but the
0: the core elements are a two-step process, which is some form of proposal for a constitutional change, also alongside that presumably some vision of the legislation which will follow that legislation of course as 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 the as the pro-life side point out is only temporary and contingent and dependent upon the mood of the any oroctus that should follow
1: that's right and uh, in our system a lot of TDs have traditionally come under enormous pressure from very very vocal special interest groups and you can you can. Mm-hmm say without a shadow of a doubt that that will continue now going forward um, you know our, our situation it goes without saying, our situation is unique given our proximity to the UK I mean abortions are happening in Ireland in instances where women's lives are, lives are at risk and that includes in the case of suicide but because of our proximity to the UK and other and other countries, Netherlands and so on where people go to, where women go to have abortions uh, you know, 4, is it 4,000 women I think give their address Annually, uh, mm. as so the number is higher. Uh, than yeah, I mean, these they're not they're not aliens. You know, they're they're people we know. Our colleagues, our sisters, our wives, our aunts, and so on. And you know, I think where where the conversation potentially gets very very ugly is when we get into the nitty gritty of this legally, and we start talking about, uh, you know fatal fe- fetal abnormality, uh, rape, incest, and then you get into a sort of a sphere where you're talking about almost good abortions and bad abortions and, you know, that's where it just potentially gets... Very, very risky and very, very painful for a lot of people. Indeed. I think people yeah.
2: often criticise politicians for, you know, their reluctance to deal with this issue, and much of that criticism is justified. On the other hand, if you were a politician and you could, uh, you, you, you are guaranteed that whatever you do on uh, on this question. You're you down. will have one side either calling you a baby killer and the other side calling you an abuser of women's rights. So right, well, it looks so like politicians think, have so. all that
0: to look forward to over the next few months. Pat and Mary, thanks for joining us. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember that you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And really, we are always very grateful if you take a moment to rate or to review the show as it helps us to get out to a broader audience, which we do like to do. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon, as always. And remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.